0: The sole purpose test is the cornerstone of Australia's superannuation system. And one fundamental issue within the sole purpose test is non lengths arms income. So the CIS Act got plenty to say about just that. And it does that in section 109.
1: You are listening to Australia's tax news podcast: Tax Talks, the podcast for Australian tax professionals.
0: Welcome to episode one hundred and thirty-one of Tax Talks. This is Heidi Robson, and thank you to Class for sponsoring this episode. Over the next three episodes, Peter Bobbin of Argyle Lawyers in Sydney will look at the non-arm's length concept from three angles. He will start with non-arm's length income as per the SIS Act in this episode, but then in the next episode, look at non-arm's length income as per the Income Tax Assessment Act, Section two ninety-five, and then. In the episode after that, he will look at a completely new concept, non-arm's length expenses, which feels new, but is actually already law. So here's Peter Bobbin of Argel Lawyers about non-arm's length income in the CIS Act.
1: Hi, Peter Bobbin here and welcome to my commentary to you on Gnarly, Gnarly or Gnarly.
0: How do you pronounce
1: Nali, it... Nali or Nali? It's a play on words.
0: I see. But how do you pronounce this... the one with an I at the end and how do you pronounce the one with an E at the end? Because they mean something different. One is income and one is expenses.
1: That's right, but it's a play on words. Mm. NALI, N-A-L-I, is the basic concept. Yes. And it's just an acronym shortening a particular part of the tax law. So to me having a play on that nali using that gnarly and making up that gnarly for this purpose. Yes, exactly. Ultimately, that's the rule that's known as gnarly.
0: So the official term is just gnarly for the non-arm's length income. income.
1: That's correct. In a technical sense, that's absolutely right. What is it that I'm talking about? What I'm hoping to do in the time that we now have is to talk to you about the various concepts of arm's length or more relevantly, non-arm's length for superannuation and for tax purposes. The whole concept of arm's length really underpins quite a substantial part of both the superannuation law when you look at it from this sole purpose test. What on my research in the paper that I've written, what I've come across is the view that non-arm's length actually exists a lot more than simply sole purpose, and a lot more than simply Section 109 of the Superannuation Industry Supervision Act that we, of course, all know and love and refer to as the CIS Act, but we've also got NALI non-arms-length income in the Tax Act, and that's the most dangerous one of all, to some degree, for reasons we'll talk about. And then, of course, what I want to raise with you is the whole concept of the new NALI or extended NALI provisions, N A L E that is non-arms length expenses. These are operative from 1 July 2018. I have some particular views on it, one of which is it's actually the most dangerous of all, particularly for superannuation auditors. For reasons you'll hear me say a little bit later, non-arms length expenses can be about actually looking for nothing, because that can be part of the problem. What I'm going to do is divide this up into two broad sections. That's Non-arms length as it relates on a superannuation law context, fundamentally the SIS Act, and then non-arms length as it relates to income tax and the calculation of it and how much taxes to be paid. As you may appreciate, you can have a superannuation fund that's fully complying, no problem with the CIS Act, but for tax law purposes finds itself no longer bearing the benefit of that 15% or effective 10%, but it becomes subject to the top marginal rate of tax, 45%, on that part of its income, which is non-arm's length. And remember, it's both income and expenses now that we're dealing with. So let's start off with the superannuation side of it. What is the starting point for non-arm's length? Actually, the sole purpose test. Virtually every sole purpose test case has involved an examination of a non-arms length connection and a challenge as to whether the nature of that non-arms length connection is such as to impact the sole purpose, the most fundamental rule in superannuation. And that really takes us back to the single most important case in Australia. In superannuation law, and that of course is the 1950s case. That's how long it goes back. The 1950s case involving Scott's number two, Scott's case number two. What you may find a little bit of interest is the fact that Scott's case involved a solicitor, his wife, and his wife's parents. There were four members of this super fund and it went all the way to the High Court in 1966. Of course, today you would call that super fund an SMSF, a self-managed superannuation fund. So, for those of you who are not aware of it, the single most important High Court decision in superannuation, which announces the very first expression of the whole sole purpose test, is actually involves an SMSF. Broadly speaking, what were the facts in that case? the facts were that, as the court determined, Justice Windia, that Mr Scott was not only being a solicitor, but he was also running broad acre development. He was a property developer. When you read the case, and I commend the case for reading to you because you'll really see my point here, there were two major transactions where the whole super fund fell over. The first was where property was transferred from the control of Mr Scott into the super fund. Of course, it went from property development as on revenue account, as most of you will recognise, into a superannuation fund, which in those nine days of the 1950s, 60s and 70s and so forth, the super fund was exempt on its income. So from Mr Scott's perspective, this is a fabulous tax minimisation device. Problem was the property got transferred at low value under market value. Of course, he didn't want to pay the tax, I imagine, at the property development level. The other transaction, interestingly enough, occurred, and again, this is referred to by Justice windia the other transaction that occurred was after the superannuation fund was determined by the commissioner, though subject to appeals in this particular case, to be non-complying. After that, maybe as a way just to hedge his bets and protect his position, Mr Scott caused the super fund to transfer property into one of his property development entities and again that was done at under market value so the issue in the case when you look at the facts involved transfers of real estate by one of the members of the fund to and from the superannuation fund. Now, you'll note that it wasn't the dealings on a non-arm's length basis between the parties. It wasn't the fact that the parties were not at arm's length. It was actually the fact that the transaction was not at arm's length.
0: So the property went into the SMSF, let's call it an SMSF, even though in those days they didn't have the term SMSF. Yeah. So the property went into the SMSF below market value, but it also left the SMSF below market value.
1: A different property, but that's correct.
0: Oh, okay. Since it's a different property, it was an issue. If it had been the same property, one might have said, okay. It still would
1: have had the same problem. Okay. Because we have a non-arms length transaction occurring. So again, just to emphasise, when you actually read Scott's case, and remember in Scott's case, the superannuation fund was found to be in fundamental breach of the sole purpose test, two of the most critical elements that underpinned that decision, there were a few others that assisted, but two of the most critical elements was the fact of a transfer in to the super fund at an undervalue or non-arm's length value, and the transfer by the super fund out again at an undervalue, non-arms-length value. So there you have it. The very first and singly most important and recognised case that underpins this whole sole purpose test as it relates to Australian superannuation was actually based on non-arms-length transactions. What I'm affirming for you is an understanding that sole purpose, many, very many of the cases that actually visit and look at the issue as to sole purpose all turn on have the transactions being entered into by the Superfund been on an arm's length basis. So that's your first starting point. We don't go to Section 109. We don't look at the other sections of the SIS Act. We actually, actually start with sole purpose, as it exists, Section 62, non-arm's length. From an auditor perspective, of course, that means that if you come across a non-arm's length transaction... It's not merely a 109 issue. You actually do need to consider, is the character of this non-arms length transaction of such a nature that it may impact the actual purpose? In practical terms, what the High Court found, Justice Windier in the 1966 decision of Scott's number two, was that, in effect, Scott, the solicitor and part-time property developer, was using superannuation not for the purpose of generating retirement benefits, it was really for taxation purposes. What, of course, that also leads me to urge is that when you're looking at giving advices to clients about why and how they might utilise superannuation in their overall investment strategies and so on, don't overemphasise the tax-beneficial nature of superannuation. Because if you actually overemphasise the tax-beneficial nature of superannuation, why aren't you urging the client to engage in the transaction via the super fund in a manner which is tax-beneficial, tax advantageous? And why wouldn't that sort of language assist the ATO in then, not unreasonably, seeking to draw support from Scott's case and perhaps challenge the whole sole purpose? What I suggest is that The language to use is, if the transaction is carried out through the superannuation, then it will have the effect of locking in funds for future retirement, and on an after-tax basis will help to emphasise available funds to be used in retirement. When you think about it, all I'm doing is saying the same thing as before, but I'm just using an outcomes language, and I'm not emphasising tax opportunity, tax minimisation. I'm really saying consistent with what superannuation is about, is that the purpose and character and nature of the transaction is so as to really build that pot for retirement on an after-tax basis efficiently. That's what the suggestion is. Let's then move on from the, what I say is the original non-arm's length, which is the sole purpose test. The sole purpose test relates to the superannuation fund itself, just as a bit of an aside. I note some comments by both Justice Hill and Justice Pincus in happened to be the same year, 1991 decisions of Raymond Contractus and Roche's case. In both of those cases, the tax offers challenged and the court accepted that not only is there a sole purpose test as regards the superannuation fund itself, but there is also a sole purpose contributions test the intention to contribute to superannuation needs to be if an income tax deduction is going to be obtained for the sole purpose of gaining superannuation entitlements. In both Raymore Contractor's and Roche's case, the court, assisted by the tax office, formed the view that the contributions are actually not for the purposes of ensuring that the employee recipient was to get the benefit of future retirement. It was actually for a different purpose. In a modern context, what's an example of that? If business partners have their buy-sell, their business insurance, held through superannuation, and their purpose of that business insurance is to enable one party, the survivor, to buy out the other party, the deceased, and that business insurance is held via superannuation, then because that purpose of the contribution will be going in part to the payment of the life insurance and that life insurance is actually being held not for retirement or death benefit-dependent purposes, rather for the ability to be able to buy out a business partner, you actually have a situation where there's a breach of the sole purpose contributions test. The result being there's no proportionality that's been applied. The whole of the tax deduction that was sought to be obtained is knocked out. Just thought I'd mention that as a bit of an aside, an extension of the sole purpose test as it relates to contributions. Many will recognise, and I, I just think it's worthwhile talking a little bit further about the whole sole purpose, because those of you who've been around quite some time, you might have grey hair like me or perhaps less hair, Well, remember, there was a time when the consensus of view was that the sole purpose concept meant that a superannuation fund could not own or run a business. So what's changed? What I invite you to do is to have a look at the two fundamental sections around which all of this has arisen. Now, again, if you have a look at Scott's case you'll see that extracted in that case by Justice Windia is the section that talked about sole purpose. And if I can just read it to you... By the way, I'm actually reading from the Income Tax and Social Services Contribution Assessment Act, 1936. Now, some of you might be a bit quizzical at that and say, well, that's a bit longer than what I recall, Income Tax and Social Services Contributions Assessment Act, 1936. That actually was the full and proper name for what we now call the Income Tax Assessment Act, 1936. It was called the Income Tax and Social Services Contribution Assessment Act. So if you ever come across those people who say, hmm, back in the day, I paid my taxes, I'm entitled to my pension, frankly, they were right, because the law used to be called Income Tax and Social Services Contribution Assessment Act. What the government did back then was they realized that the social services contribution part that they were collecting, well, they spent it. They just dropped the phrase and social services contribution to now leave us with what we know being the income tax and social the income tax assessment act nineteen thirty six. Anyway, again I digress. That original section twenty three J talked about funds of this superannuation nature being provided and being applied for the purpose. I interpret the phrase being applied as being where the sole purpose argument in a non-business activity has come from. What happened is, on the introduction of the Superannuation Industry Supervision Act 1993, different wording was applied. If you have a look at Section 62, it talks about each trustee of a regulated superannuation fund must ensure that the fund is maintained solely. Let me again repeat. The earlier law was being applied for the purpose. You can see the singularity that follows. Whereas the latter law talks about maintained solely. It's that change in law that changed the general view, whereas before the CIS Act... I think it is correct to say that superannuation fund could not engage in a business per se or, or as such. It's because of the change of the CIS Act with reference to, particularly to Section 62, changing from the language of being applied for the purpose to new language of is maintained solely. That was enough to say, well, you can maintain the fund solely for the purposes of retirement purposes and, in doing so, actually run and engage a business. So, just to answer some of you who may have once held the view, as I did, that superannuation funds could not run a business. It's a different approach now. Now that we've looked at Section 62, and those of you who may have looked at some of my notes, you'll see that I've extracted some comments by Justice Windier from Scott's case number two. Let's move on. Again, I invite you... Do yourself a favour. Do it as I did. Have a read of Scott's case number two. Um, It'll help you greatly in helping you to help clients avoid some of those problems. Now, in a practical sense, what I actually say is if you accept as I do that sole purpose being the most fundamental rule is in large part a sole purpose, non arm's length, Question, non-unslink transaction question, then from a practical view, how do you translate that to the benefit of clients? Well, one of the things I do is I tell my SMSF trustees to panic. It might sound a bit strange, but I actually say to them, worry a lot about the paperwork. Quite simply, quite frankly, the better the paperwork looks, the less the tax office has interest in it. Um, the more That a transaction has the potential because the parties are not arm's length, or it's a bit challengeable as to whether the transaction itself, the value that is, is arm's length, then put more paperwork in place. The greater the paperwork, of course that paperwork is all about affirming the likelihood of it being arm's length in nature, the greater the paperwork, the less likely the tax office will have concerns. What I'm saying is safe keep good, comprehensive and potentially voluminous paperwork to prove the transaction was true and to prove it was an arm's length of value. One of the things I also advocate is to make sure that the investment strategy matches the retirement plan and need. If you're going to have a superannuation fund that's going to embark in just standard run-of-the-mill, dare I say, nothing wrong with this, but listed securities or perhaps owns real property that it lets to third parties, et cetera, et cetera, or perhaps a mix of cash or bonds, there's really not a lot to be concerned about, is there? It's just an audit. Do the investments exist, et cetera? However, it's where the super fund owns real estate that gets leased back to related parties. It's where the super fund may become involved in your more adventurous transaction I say make sure the strategy matches the retirement plan and need. If the super fund is going to be aggressive in its investments and that aggressiveness involves non-arms length parties and potentially accusations of non-arms length transactions, make sure the strategy emphasises the need for this particular super fund to be a bit more aggressive in its approach to investments. Why? Because the Superfund members have a higher, more important need in retirement. Make sure the strategy, investment strategy, matches the retirement plan. Frankly, my view of some people hold the perspective of, well, you can have an investment strategy that says zero to 100% in equity, zero to 100% in cash or bonds, etc., and zero to 100% in property. That's probably, in my view, it's quite simplistic and naive. However, To be blunt, you're likely to get away with it, but only where the super fund is completely invested in non-arms length and complete independent investments, listed securities and the such. As soon as there are private investments involved, as soon as there are private dealings involved, make sure the strategy matches. It's just part of the paperwork. It's part of the plan. The next approach to non-arms length Once we satisfy the CIS Act in Section 62 sole purpose test, we've then got to look at non-arm's length as it relates to Section 109. And what I say is that when you read the section, there's three parts to this Section 109. The first part is that the Superfund must not invest unless the trustee and the other party to the relevant transaction are dealing with each other at arm's length in respect of the transaction. No brainer there, as long as you've got a non-arm's length transaction, commonly value, but it can also mean methodology in the transaction, it's all good. However, it goes on to say, must not invest, this is the second part of the three parts to 109 if not dealing with each other at arm's length in respect of the transaction, and the transaction is more favourable to the other party than if they were dealing at arm's length in the same circumstances. So rather curiously, what Section 109 in this second part says is if the underlying property, for example, has a value of $1,000... And if the Superfund is acquiring, ignoring your issues surrounding Section 66 of the SIS, which I'll comment in a moment, but if the Superfund is acquiring the particular asset, maybe it's because it's listed securities, from a non-arms-length party, what Section 109 says is the transaction must not be more favourable to the other party. In other words, the Superfund must not be acquiring these $1,000 shares for 1,001 or 1,100 because that would be more favourable to the other party. But what it also implies, of course, is that the Superfund could acquire it for 900 or 999 because that's not more favourable to the other party. It's more favourable to the Superfund. The second part to Section 109 talks about if it's not at arm's length, it just mustn't be more favourable to the other party but by necessary implication it can actually be favourable to the super fund
0: Yes, so it's okay to buy low and sell high this related party
1: So in the context of this second part to section 109 it would seem to suggest that it's okay to buy low that is sell into the super fund low and then enable the super fund to sell high however I caution you because that was one of the intended transactions of Mr Scott, the solicitor in Scott's case, and Justice Windia took us to a real fundamental view of non-arm's length as it relates to the sole purpose test. So it's not without its issues. The second limb to Section 109, it's not a breach of Section 109 itself, but I caution just maybe if it's particularly aggressive, might it be a breach of Section 62. The third part, if a trustee during the term of the investment is required to deal with another party that is not at arm's length, the trustee must deal as if the other party were at arm's length with the trustee. Really what we're talking about there to give you a clear example is if the super fund owns commercial real estate and it leases it to a related party, that lease to the related party needs to be on an arm's length basis. And what I would urge you to do is to ensure that on the file of the client is a copy of a real estate agent's, at least a real estate agent's indicative letter as to what is a proper market rental. How do I then view Section 109 in this context to be frank, I view it as a tad boring. You can see that it's a rule, it's there, but almost in a sense, if you're going to be having the Superfund dealing on a non-arms length basis, isn't Scott's case number two and section 62, doesn't that override section 109? What I find is, in my view, section 109 is actually really quite shallow when you look at it. And that's actually been determined by a whole range of cases as well, because Where we've had a situation where the Superfund holds investments in, say, a unit trust, and then it's the unit trust, and it might be a cis-regulation 1322D, I would think it is, compliant unit trust, where that unit trust then engages on a non-arms-length basis, the commissioner, that is the tax office, has sought to argue that the non-arms-length transaction by the unit trust was a breach of 109, but what the tribunal has said is no, Section 109 is directed at the trustee of the Superfund. Is the trustee of the Superfund engaging in a non-arms-length activity? If yes, 109 becomes an issue. If no, because the non-arms-length character is being dealt with at a different level, say, inside that unit trust, Section 109 has no application. So another way of looking at Section 109 is it's really quite shallow in potential application. And for that reason, I I don't really regard it as highly dangerous. Having said that, though, of course, if the character of the non-arm's length transaction really does impact at a Section 62 level, of course, 109 is likely to be mentioned. (laughs) Looking at section 109 on this shallow basis, as I do, is that a breach of this gives rise to civil and criminal potential consequences of being involved in a contravention, but the contravention does not affect the validity of a transaction. So there you have it. We can actually have a transaction may breach section 109 but that doesn't actually impact on the validity of the transaction. The transaction will still go ahead, even though there may be a breach of Section 109. That view as to uh, one layer thick that I mentioned earlier, that was actually profiled by Montgomery and Woods, which is a 2012 Administrative Appeals Tribunal decision, where the tribunal found that the way to approach Section 109 is in this single-layered approach, not tracing it, in a depth way through to the underlying investments that a super fund may have in units, in a unit trust. In my view, your non arm's length transaction concepts also exist in various other sections of the CIS Act. Section 65, Section 66, Section 67, Section 65, you must not provide financial accommodation to a member or a relative. Section 66, you must not acquire an asset from a member other or a related party other than listed securities or uh, business real property. Section 67, you must not lend. I regard those sections as being very prescriptive non-arms length. When you look at it, it's really the non-arms length component that those sections are addressing. 109 deals with the non-arms length transaction itself. Those sections deal with the non-arms length Relationship of the parties. I won't comment any further. I just think it's interesting to identify that non-arms length actually exists a lot more in the CIS Act than people um, originally give it credit to. But that's not the important area anymore, it seems to me. Non-arms length has a rather different meaning when we look at it from a tax law perspective. What we've done is we've just looked at it from a superannuation law perspective, which is highly relevant in terms of complying status or the possibility of fines and the such. But given that superannuation is so much more about saving for retirement and investing for retirement, which on an after-tax basis will provide those source of future funds, the ability to come within the non-arms-length income tax rules becomes quite relevant.
0: Welcome back. I thought it is interesting that pretty much all court cases in relation to the sole purpose test centre around non-arms-length transactions. So this episode focused on the CIS Act, Section 109 of the CIS Act. The next episode, Episode 132, will focus on the Income Tax Assessment Act 1997. Peter Bobbin will talk about non-arms-length income as per Section 295-550. Until then, thank you for listening and thank you to class for their support. Bye for now and see you in the next episode.